Today's episode is sponsored by Meglio. Meglio is a fitness equipment company designed to help you get fitter, faster and more flexible and enjoy the process. With a range of resistance bands, mats, foam rollers, gym balls and more, everything is portable and lightweight so you can use it in whatever space you have available and enjoy the freedom of fitness on your own terms. I absolutely love Meglio and their range, and it's my go-to brand for all of my workout goodies. They have very kindly given my listeners 10% off their product, so head to www.mymeglio.com and use the code MINDSET10. Thank you very much to Meglio. I'm Alexandra Legui. This is Mindset Unfiltered. My guest today is a fascinating, multiple award-winning documentary photographer who immerses himself in the toughest of environments and captures absolute beauty and hope in the most remarkable way, despite being in the most harrowing of situations and places. His work has been published in the Washington Post, Time, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, Bloomberg, the Christian Science Magazine, The Guardian... Greenpeace mag and so much more. He is making waves with his photographs and I urge you to take a look at his website eduardoleal.co.uk and get to one of his next exhibitions which hopefully will happen soon and I will definitely be going to once the world opens up again. Meet Eduardo. How are you? Oh well I'm good, I'm good. Uh, Well thinking about everything that is happening I cannot complain. Uh, you know, where are I you? Think, uh, uh, well, usually, I well, in the last, it's very well, it's weird because uh, I'm supposed to be based in Macau, but uh, I'm in Portugal since March last year uh, because I came here for uh, a launch of a project, uh, and it was I arrived three days before all the pandemic started. So the borders in Macau closed and I'm stuck in Portugal since then. Oh my uh, God. And how much has that impacted you? Uh, well, uh, in terms of work, massively, because obviously, well, I used to be based in South America for many years, for almost more than seven years. And uh, I moved to Macau like a year and something before the pandemic. Uh, let's say a year and a half. So basically... Yeah, so basically I moved continents and then suddenly, you know, and my girlfriend is there, yeah. I have a house there, yeah. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, and then I came here. So it's personally, obviously, because uh, I'm separate with, of my girlfriend right now. We are, you know, in different continents. Uh, the lucky thing was that uh, when we got stuck, we got stuck together here. Right. Uh, but uh, she's also a journalist, so she had to go back because she works for the local uh, TV station. So when she managed a repatriation flight, because she's a local, uh, she's a Macau uh, uh, citizen, she was allowed to go back, but I'm not. So, sure. so basically she went back, I stay here. I was hoping that I could go back in uh, a month or two. The reality is it's passed more than one year and I'm still waiting for to be able to go back. So basically, yeah, it was work-wise and uh, personally uh, oh. impacted a lot. But, uh, you know, you have to take life as it is and uh, hope for better things. And uh, I cannot complain, you know. Uh, also, I have to see the positive sides of things. And 
Well, I spend more time with my family, which I for almost 20 years barely did. And, uh, and now I'm in Açores Islands. I don't know if you know about it. It's some Portuguese islands in the middle of the Atlantic. I came here like a year ago and I'm de uh, developing some personal projects and it's a very, it's a beautiful place and everything. So I cannot really well complain with that. And I have to grab to the positive things. Yeah, of course. And I think that if nothing else, this last sort of 18 months has taught us to do exactly that, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, completely. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Well, I, I'm vaccinated now, so I just need to to hope that they hope, because I knew without vaccine, I will never be able to go anywhere. Now I have the vaccine, finally. Uh, so hopefully they will open the borders at some point and I can go back and resume life. But until then, I will do the best I can while I'm here. God, that's so tough. Well, yeah. sorry to hear that. Oh, yeah, I uh, it's okay. When I saw that you were that you were in Macau, I thought, oh gosh, that's a, that's a tricky place to be right now. Or yeah, yeah, <laughs> because they cannot leave. You know, no. they are. My girlfriend is. She's like, yeah, it's we are safe here. Well, they only had forty eight cases, I think, since they started the pandemic. No deaths, no anything, but it's a thirty square kilometer place. Yeah fully packed with people and no one can leave basically because you have to do 21 days quarantine for locals others cannot go so and they are everyone is very very i know a lot of people that left already they were like uh, yeah uh, expatriate they were leaving there and they, they just said i had enough of these i cannot stay in a place where i cannot even move and they just quit jobs and move home yeah. or back home or something yeah i know a couple as well because we race there every year yeah, um, yeah, I know, I know the Grand Prix. Well, yeah. Of course, because obviously you know Emiliano, but that's how we are linked. And mm -hmm. yeah, I can't really imagine, I can't really imagine being stuck there. I'm not sure that's somewhere that I would choose to be stuck. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's a very weird place to live. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't mind live there because it's only base. I usually are working around Asia, so... I move a lot and it's okay. It's a place just to stay. But uh, if I had to do a nine to five job and stay all the time there, I will not be able to do it. No, no, I agree. It's a crazy, crazy place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me on my podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's, thank uh, you for inviting me. Yeah. Well, it's um, exciting because you're very different to my other guests. Yeah, I, I was looking to your guests and I was like, well, I don't know if she really knows what I do and everything because, yeah. I, I like that. I like that. And I like, um, I love the fact that you have seen and experienced things that people would never have never had the opportunity of seeing and experiencing. And I imagine that, uh, you know, you've learned a lot through that journey. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a... It's a great school, the school of life, you know, and especially when you have so many changes and everything. Yeah. So take me back, Eduardo, to when you were young, where, where you grew up in Portugal. Were you always interested in photography and uh, the creative world? Uh, well, it's um, yeah, I grew up in Portugal. I was born in Porto. Uh, I lived there until I was 23. Um, I studied journalism and um, but it's funny when I, I always like to tell stories so basically what took me to journalism 
uh, and uh, with photography, it's funny because, uh, well, I always say that uh, the wheels of my life uh, that command my life were given by my grandfather, that is traveling and photography. Uh, because, uh, well, he was a colonel from the army and uh, he, he, he actually was captain of the police in Macau in the 50s. It's funny because then I end up there. Uh, and he worked, he was in Angola and uh, many different places and he traveled a lot. So he used to, I remember when we were a kid, he used to open, you know, you always consume many news, always the news. And uh, imagine there was a bomb in Islamabad. My grandfather will ask, where is Islamabad? And I was young, I, I didn't know much about it. And they're like, oh, I don't know. And he used to open the atlas that he had and uh, show me and you know oh here he is in Pakistan and then he starts talking about the partition of India and explaining all this political things and everything so that grew up and he was a amateur photographer he was always carrying a camera but taking photos of more family and things and uh, so it was funny because I was basically I grew up on that uh, but uh, I didn't realize that I had passion for photography I just want to tell stories so I went to journalism school uh, but it's funny because in the second year I had uh, one of the classes was photojournalism. And I was actually very excited. I was, I not even started the course and I already had there, oh, there's photojournalism in the second year. Well, that will be pretty cool to, to have, but with no notion that that will one day be my life. Yeah. And um, so I did the first year, the second year. And when I go to the second year, I have the class of photojournalism. And on the first class, the teacher said, oh, there's exhibition of Sebastian Salgado in a foundation close to the university. I didn't know who Sebastian Salgado was. Uh, and uh, I went to see the exhibition. It was about the work that he did in Serra Plada with the gold miners and everything. is those images that are very biblical and everything. And when I looked to those images, I was like, okay, this is the way I want to tell stories. Wow. And, uh, and it just was like that. From that, then on, I was like, okay, I'm just going to focus. I want to tell, because I was taking a, my, I couldn't choose photography as a major in the journalism school. I only could, you could do print, uh, TV, or radio. And I was going to do radio, and which I did, but I never worked in radio stations or anything, because as soon as I had saw that exhibition, I knew, okay, I'm going to do photography and uh, after I graduated uh, one month later I was living in the UK I moved to the UK and uh, I started doing random jobs because I always believed that before I became a journalist I always went to work in international uh, news and everything and uh, maybe because I came from a very small country and I always felt that there was a bigger world outside and I want to be part of it so uh, when I graduate, I moved to the UK, first to Scotland, uh, to Edinburgh, and I started doing all these kind of random jobs from cleaning muscles, driving rickshaws, bartending, you know, uh, all these weird jobs and yeah. save money to go travel. So basically I became a, a backpacker and uh, for like three years, more or less three, four years, that was kind of my life. I used to stay in Edinburgh, uh, save money and go for a trip like a year, South America which was my first then place where I started properly working as a photojournalist. And, uh, and then I went to Asia for a year as well. And then at one point I was like, okay, if I want to be a photographer, I need to take this seriously and I need to focus on this. And for that, I moved to London and uh, I stayed in London for six years, which uh, uh, first I started taking a, um, 
because I felt that, okay, I, I like photography. I take a lot of photos, but uh, I don't have proper knowledge about photography. And I know you can be self-taught, but I always thought that I need directions. And in London, it's a very difficult place. Well, there's a lot of opportunities, but at the same time, there's a lot of competition. And I thought that going through school will be a very good way, not just to learn skills and everything, but to do connections. So I went to the London College of uh, Communication. I did first a technical course of photography, which I was not very interested because it was much more about studio and all those things, which I was not interested. I wanted to be on the streets. But it's funny because through that and, uh, and being in London, I met uh, a person who was called Mark Sanders. Uh, he was the curator of the uh, Arpad Busson Foundation at the time. And they were building a, a collection of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, and uh, I met him on a talk. Actually, he was giving a talk in Magnum Photos in London. And we started talking and uh, I went to visit the office and he invited me to do internship there. And it was funny because I was working in a jazz bar in Greenwich and while I was paying my studies. Uh, and uh, from that on, I started working in the collection, which I worked for five years, uh, build up the collection. We set up uh, exhibitions in New York, in Moscow. We, we made an amazing book. And through that, actually, not just the, the technical course I did, then I finished the course, I kept in the foundation working because then I, I got a full-time job there. And that was proper education in terms because I was looking to photographs every single day of the Cuban revolution from the 1950s until 1968, which what was the, the foundation focused on. And, uh, and it was funny because uh, I was learning, looking through photographs, but that was also what gave me the first step to launch as a freelance because um, I was looking to do, I remember one day I was looking to the photograph because I have to catalog them. I used to go a lot to Cuba to identify the people that were in the photographs and do research. And uh, when uh, one day I was sitting in the office and I was looking and obviously my dream was to be a photojournalist, a documentary photographer. And I was looking to those photographs and I was like, damn, you know, I wish I could uh, live during this period and document this, be there. And then it crossed my mind that, uh, well, you know, something not very different is happening in Venezuela with Chavez, because Chavez and Fidel have, uh, you know, different times, but uh, a very similar story in many ways. And I was like, well, it's something there. So I asked a month of holidays and I flew to Venezuela. And at the time it was the 200th anniversary of independence of the country. So I went there, just let's see what's happening. And funny enough, it was when happened the, uh, Chavez got sick and also he had cancer. So I covered that, which was my first story basically published. I came to London, I managed to sell it. And uh, from then on, I had a link to Venezuela. And uh, I, I kept working in London in the collection. And I started going flying to Venezuela when I could. Uh, so I went to cover collections and uh, then Chavez funeral. Uh, I had a friend call me and said, Chavez died in the today and I like next day I just took a flight to Venezuela to cover the funeral and the coming elections with Nicolas Maduro the president now and uh, and during that my last year in London I also went to do the masters in 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 photojournalism and documentary photography also in LCC and that was my final step to when I finished the masters I was already very engaged in Venezuela reality and I said okay my time with the the foundation didn't end, but the collection 
of Cuba, we had finished the project. We were starting new projects, but I felt, okay, my time here is over. I, I cannot, if I stay, I felt, I feel that I'm going to be here always taking care of the photos of other people and it's time to make my own. And so that's when I moved to first, I moved to South America, first Venezuela, and then I started covering uh, South America for six, seven years. Wow. Gosh. I mean, <laughs> for your first like big adventure, that's pretty epic. And those connections, you obviously just were open to any doors that were open as well. It sounded like you were just going to grab life by the horns and go, all right, let's roll with this and let's go, let's get right in to the nitty gritty straight away, right? <laughs> well, yes, I, it's funny because now past change during life, you know, you always, uh, you. I, I'm open to that. I know that, but I always feel that you never, you shouldn't forget your goals. In life but you need to understand that from a to b is not a straight line so you need you need to understand that you're going to do a lot of curves and some steps backwards and then you know some forward and everything and i think you need really to be open to that and leave the present as much as you can and uh, obviously when i move to uh, the uk for example it was funny because my family thought i was mad you know like uh, so you graduate in journalism and you go clean muscles in edinburgh but I felt that that was always, I wanted to first live proper life, you know, like be independent and uh, go to do my traveling by my own, my own money. And, uh, and also, yeah, let's see what the world gives me. I'm a very positive person. Uh, I always believe that something is going to come up, even when sometimes we always have back, uh, dark moments or, you know, doubts about it. Obviously, everyone has them. But I always believe that the uh, universe will conspire in favor. You know, if you believe, I think things will happen. You just be, need to be patient and see the signs. And uh, like the foundation, it happened. Uh, I was not expecting when I went to talk with him, I was not expecting to be offered a job, but uh, it happened. And I was like, okay. And it was funny because I even delayed my life as a photographer because I planned to do the master's many years before, but because of the foundation, I said, no, I'm in the right place right now. I don't need to rush this because this is being a very good opportunity for me. And uh, so slowly, and then yes, because I always wanted to be a fo uh, war photographer, it's funny. And that is the thing, how the past and goals sometimes change a bit. That's why, in a way I went to Venezuela and Latin America because I knew, and because I'm Portuguese, I speak fluent Spanish, Portuguese. So it was the right place to be. And uh, yeah, and I think it was luck as well, a bit the destiny that then Venezuela became, became such a big story at the time. And uh, yeah, which, which helped me actually launch the career. Yeah, so. but you were open to that and you were brave to go for that. So I think some people would shy away from such a big story and a big situation for their first foray into the unknown. So it's bravery, I think, as well. And definitely, I think, um, having your heart and your ears open for the for the doors, you know, and be willing to step through them. Um, and that's clearly what you're what you were willing to do is just leap into that unknown and see where it took you. Yeah, yeah, I think. But like everything, I think even for example, the example now, I was stuck because of the pandemic in Portugal, and obviously, I'm from Porto and. Uh, you know, some journalists, I know photographers, we suffer sometimes a lot that, that uh, the place that we know the best, we don't see anything. And 
in Porto, I cannot work, basically. I cannot see stories. I cannot even photograph almost. I, it's very hard for me. So I was stuck there. And I was thinking, well, I've never been in Astoria. I cannot basically leave Portugal or it's not the best time to go around the world or whatever. So I came to these little islands in the middle of the Atlantic. With I only bought a one-way ticket here. I'm here for a year now and uh, and see what happens. And uh, I'm doing stories now. I'm some exhibitions coming up. So... It's really just uh, go with your guts and, uh, yeah. and believe in it. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. That is exactly right. So um, so then what was your next, when you came back or when you sort of finished that Venezuelan chapter, then what happened? Because you're, I mean, you've done so many different, very high impact stories. So what happened next? Uh, well, the Venezuela story dragged for a long time. Uh, I I moved when I finished the chapter in London. I, I moved to South America. I started working in Venezuela. Uh, it was a very, very hard time. I had very difficult moments there. Uh, I was beaten up by the police. I was arrested. Uh, uh, I had equipment stolen by the police. So I had... I had a very hard time there, but at the same time, uh, I felt I had a, a mission there. So I, I I understood that I couldn't live there all the time. So I start, I kept working in Venezuela with assignments and sometimes on my own. And I kept and I moved to other areas of uh, South America. Uh, the first time when I left Venezuela, I went to Brazil, especially because it was the World Cup coming. And uh, I'm a football fan and it will be... I. I'll, I would like to leave the, the atmosphere and everything. So I went to do stories in Brazil. And from then on, I went to Bolivia, Argentina, uh, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia. And then I settled in Colombia. Uh, I, I moved to, because I realized it was a very interesting country. I loved the atmosphere, the people, very close to Venezuela. So I could fly easy, easily there. And, uh, and I basically start focusing more in the Andean region. So I work a lot, especially in Colombia, Ecuador, and uh, Bolivia. Uh, so I start focusing that. And then I start discovering uh, interests that is the condition of human, uh, women in society. Uh, from... Virtualities rise, is it? Exactly. Well, it, it's funny because it started before I, I was in... Bolivia to cover the presidential election of Evo Morales, or it was his second or third mandate at the time. And um, and it's fun because I have a Cholita there. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I was there and uh, it's the thing that uh, these doors or the guts or something, I was covering a presidential election, which for me was very boring. It's not really the story I really like to do. And uh, I knew that there was these uh, wrestling cholitas, which now are very famous. Um, and, and I was like, oh, this is very interesting. And I, I, I knew two people, two photographers, I don't know them personally, but had done some work with them. Uh, but I was like, okay, you know, uh, one thing I love with photography is I believe that the camera is a passport to other worlds. Uh, 
I sometimes I think why I'm here, and it's only because I have a camera and I'm allowed to go there to photograph. And uh, and I was like, well, uh, I was already interested because I dated for a long time a Swedish woman, a girl. Uh, I had a Swedish girlfriend, and uh, she was a very very feminist. So she kind of was my first wake up call okay. about things that you don't realize, you know. Uh, well, now that with Me Too movements and everything, people talk. Well, it's much more in the conversation, thankfully. And, uh, but she started opening my mind. And uh, when I was there, I was like, okay, women wrestling and everything. Okay, this sounds interesting. So I went there. I, I thought, I probably will not sell this story, but I want to meet the women that are going to a ring and wrestling. And uh, I became friends of them. I hung out with them for a month and a half. And one day I was sitting with one of them, Reina in a cafe, and she told me, you know, Eduardo, 15 years ago, I was not allowed to be in the cafe here with you. And that ring a bell on me. Like, why? And she, oh, because we, indigenous women, the Chalitas, we were not allowed as a lot of things in society. Like, uh, they couldn't even enter the square where the parliament is. Wow. This is the most extreme thing. So basically, they were put, their position in society was they can be nannies to middle and, you know, the high class of society uh, or work like in stalls in food markets and stuff, but they didn't have very opportunities in society. They weren't allowed you know, to read or write or anything, right? Well, so, so even taxis will deny them like, uh, or buses, bus drivers. It was not like a law, but bus drivers could say, no, you don't enter. I remember one of them told me a story that uh, they opened the, the first shopping mall there that they had uh, electric uh, stairs uh, and she and she wanted to go there just to ride the, the stairs and they didn't allow her, her to enter the shopping mall wow. just because she was an indigenous, uh, uh, a Shalita indigenous person. And uh, so I was, when she told me that, I was like, okay, this is very, very interesting story. And I want to do something about this. And uh, that's how we start the Shalita's Rise story. Uh, but uh, the condition of indigenous women in Bolivia didn't change uh, completely. Well, not now. They changed. But uh, there's a lot of the past still going on. But, uh, and I could focus on that. But one thing I have, sometimes I'm critical about journalism is that uh, we focus too much in the negative. And then sometimes we don't bring any positives to, to the discussion. And, uh, and I felt that uh, I could tell this story in a different way. So instead of looking for look to this uh, woman that works in a, you know, in a stall or has these problems, you know, doesn't have opportunities in society, I went to look for women that broke the links and they are actually doing it. So, uh, and uh, so then I found a, a woman that was a vice uh, mayor of one of the major towns in Bolivia, one that was a parliamentary, women uh, presenting on news, which before they were not allowed to. So basically these women start breaking the, the chains and uh, I start developing the story that is the project Cholita's Rise. But all came from a conversation with a, a wrestler and then uh, he, he just developed. And since then, I actually, most of my stories, not all, but uh, I actually, fin I'm fin about finishing one here in Azores with a fisherwoman uh, here in Azores. 
I'm working in monks, female monks, I, uh, female uh, bullfighters. I'm, I am, have loads of projects because I'm really interested in, the, in this subject. Obviously, I cover other things, but uh, if I can use my own free time, I, I like to focus on this. What a wonderful way of making that switch, because you're totally right. There's so much um, sadness that we see and very emotive pictures. Um, and to have somebody who's sort of paving the way, you have that access, you have those stories and you're finding a way of, of bringing our attention to the positives, you know, to, to, and those women are so brave, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's a brilliant, brilliant thing. And against the odds, I went to La Paz for the Dakar a couple of years mm -hmm. ago and um, I found it charming, but with an undercurrent of, of oppression and um, they were actually probably the one place that was really against the Dakar coming through. Hmm. Um, which was quite interesting, but a, an incredible place to to spend some time in. And I really would like to have spent more time there. And I can sort of understand why you're why you would choose to go somewhere like that and just delve a little bit deeper because it's just mm. full of just full of that, full of full of story. Yeah, yeah, I believe it. it's very rich and um, yeah. But one point of also doing the positive story is like because uh, I, I actually believe that uh, these stories, the positive stories, is like uh, I can maybe change a bit of that, and if not, I can inspire. For example, if other women see this in I don't know in Senegal or yeah. Burkina Faso or you know Thailand or whatever, and they might be in the same situation if they look well. They did it. They break these chains. Uh, why can I not I do the same? If I was perpetuating the image of poor women, look at them. They are being exploited by society and everything. I'm not bringing anything new to the conversation. I'm not changing anything. And the reality is like, and this is one of the things that probably I had, as I said, I had like the, the dream of being a war photographer at the beginning. But the reality is how many, I think it's very important to document conflict and everything but the reality did it change anything until now no, you're right uh, so maybe you know we need to change the the approach on the conversation to to change something yeah so that's why i'm focusing more in more positive things than <laughs> yeah yeah to give hope yeah i i know that i'm not going to change the world but uh, you know if you can plant put a seed at least and maybe grow a little plant it's already something Tell me more about your, I mean, I might be jumping on. Um, That's okay. I'm quite inspired by, you know, with that in mind, by your plastic series, which I know mm -hmm. is quite a big story um, for you. Um, on your website, you there's you have a, a paragraph. I, I urge everyone to go and have a look at Eduardo's website, eduardoleal.co.uk. And in the plastic series, there's the plastic trees section. The photos there are beautiful and harrowing. Uh, they make me feel uncomfortable and yet they're beautiful to look at. Does, would that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the point of how, why they were done that way. Yeah. 
they remind me of the web, the spider's webs as well. You know, the trees, mm -hmm. all the webs. So it says on your plastic trees, it says the world consumes one million every minute. It was considered by Guinness World Book of Records as the most ubiquitous consumer item in the world. But the all useful plastic bag has become the main source of pollution worldwide. It can be found everywhere on the planet, from the seaside, the bottom of the ocean, the Arctic, and even at, on the top of the world, on Mount Everest. Since most of the plastic isn't biodegradable and it is a durable material, it can last for hundreds of years in the environment. And then it goes, you go on, don't you, to sort of talk about, um, you know, the effect on the environment. Um, what inspired you to look into this story? Uh, well... As I said in the beginning of the conversation, I, I, I did a lot of backpacking and traveling and I was taking photos of. And uh, one thing that bothered me is, doesn't matter if I was in Asia or in South America, the most amazing locations I was, there was always plastic somewhere. Uh, and it really bothered me. So I had in mind one day I want to do uh, something about it. Obviously with photography, Photography is my, main, uh, my way of communicating. Uh, uh, so I wanted, I was thinking to do a project, especially when I became a photographer. Okay, I want to do a project about plastic uh, because this is a very big problem. And I'm, I'm glad that now this was done like six years ago. And uh, I think the conversation is getting bigger and bigger uh, on that. Now we have reusable bags in supermarkets and everything. At the time there was, and in the UK, especially because I lived there for a long time, I was amazed with the amount of plastic that comes for, with a banana or, you know. And uh, so, but for, it's very difficult to, and again, I want to, sh to hook the person looking to the image and I, I so they be aware of the problem, but it's very difficult to make appealing photographs of plastic. And as a photojournalist and documentary photography, I don't uh, stage anything. Uh, so basically it's one of the ethic rules we have. We cannot stage things we have to. So, so I, I, I didn't know how I'm gonna how I'm going to photograph plastic and especially the plastic bags. I don't know how I'm going to do it that I'm going to attract the viewer and hook them to the story, to the image. Uh, so funny enough, it was in Bolivia and in a place where the Dakar Pass, which is in Uni, next to the yeah. South Desert. Yeah. Uh, one day I was there waiting for permission to do a story about lithium plants there. And, oh, yeah. uh, and I was stuck in Uni for more than two weeks. And, uh, and one day I was like, okay, I just go wandering around and taking some photos. And there's a train cemetery outside of the town. And I went there to see the train cemetery. And suddenly when I realized I'm starting seeing these tiny bushes, some the size of my hands, uh, with all these plastic bags flying around, uh, stuck on them and flying like this and moving and everything. And I started playing with it, uh, but I didn't thought much about it still. And then when I went to, back to the room and I was editing the photos and looked what I took, I, there was one image that actually it's part of the series that struck to me. And I look at that and like, okay, this might be, maybe I found a way to translate what I want to say. So I start dedicating my ends, my afternoons because I, I photograph always in the same time of the day because I want to get, uh, uh, because the place was filled of, was full of uh, these little bushes, loads of plastic bags, which in the image you don't see because they are very uh, clean. 
because uh, if I took maybe a photo of showing all the bushes with the plastic bags, it will be always oh, dirty. Okay, yeah, it's plastic. But uh, then I thought, no, I need to make beautiful image that caught the attention of the, the people that will see them, but make them think. Because uh, at the beginning, you don't realize what it is. It's like, oh, it's a plastic. And so, but then it grabs you somehow the attention. And then I decide, okay, I'm going to do this series of loads of little bushes with the plastic and just work on them. And uh, it's called plastic trees because uh, of the size of the problem that plastic is about. Because actually, it's the bushes, as I said, it's probably the size of your hand. But if you look at them, and the only, uh, you know, they are, they look like trees because the only thing I did was I dig a hole and I bury kind of the camera to get the perspective from the floor up. Really? <laughs> yeah. Clever. That was the only thing I, I changed there was I, I had to make usually holes so the camera gets the perspective to photographing from bottom to top and make the little bush makes, uh, you know, appears like a massive tree and occupy the whole frame. Yeah. So then it was a, a process of, uh, of just exploring the light and and look to the more more interesting bushes and plastics that were around there because it was there were hundreds and hundreds I I have at least a hundred uh, for uh, bushes photographed but uh, I know there was much more it's like uh, it was amazing I I spent all every afternoon going there and just looking for it and the, the right angle you know and then the wind comes and yeah uh, it's the altiplano so usually it's very dry. So the skies are always blue, you know, you have these amazing lights coming in. And I felt, okay, I found the statics that I need to translate what I want to say. But I want, this was made with a purpose because, oh, it's too beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful because I want people to stuck to it, just maybe for the beauty. And then go to read what is about this project and then start thinking about it. Because again, when we do gritty image, sometimes people, oh, yeah. It's it's too easy to turn the page nowadays or to jump to another link or something. So you really need to be, you know, you need really to captivate people so they focus their attention on, on what you want to say. Well, you most definitely achieved that. It's it. The pictures are absolutely mind-blowing. Um, and then was Plastic C after was it the tree series that inspired you then to sort of delve more into that world uh yes after the did the plastics uh, trees uh well i felt that uh, i have a few well you know we are journalists but at the same time we also have our own uh, thoughts and you know worries and everything and uh, and plastic and uh, the dissemination in plastic in in the world for me, it's something that bothers me. Uh, always, we always res uh, did the recycling in my house. So I learned very young that, uh, you know, so it bothers me. And uh, people sometimes don't realize how it's easy to, you know, because it, it's everywhere, it's almost impossible to. So I, I felt, okay, I want to keep doing series about this, but um, but I'm, it's a bit about of chance as well. I I think I was thinking after that I was like, okay, I need to change place. And one thing is, uh, okay, the sea. I want to photograph the sea. But again, <laughs> it's destiny. I don't know. Uh, I went to do another story, and this was in Colombia, in uh, next to in the border between uh, in the Darien Gap between Panama and Colombia, and it was. Uh, assignment for migrant uh, migrants that crossed the Darien Gap and uh, and I was stuck there again 
and I was walking around and uh, it's amazing because I found uh, beaches where no one lives in miles and miles and miles. And uh, I was walking literally in plastic. My God. There was, this, you couldn't see the sand. The, the sand was colorful of white, uh, yellows, blues, reds, greens, you know, a lot of toothbrushes, uh, caps from bottles, things like that, toys and everything. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, maybe I found the place to do something about this. And, uh, and again, I was exploring the area and I found a place which looked like uh, almost a toilet uh, seat or, you know, uh, and uh, where the rocks made a formation when, where I could see all is the mixing of the plastic. It was filled with plastic, but with the waves, it was like moving um, very rapidly and the colors mixing and everything so the plastic c series is kind of creating paint paintings uh with with that basically again i didn't change anything i didn't touch i just observed and i found a place that represented what i want to show and it's the waves mixing and you know basically becoming a sea of plastic and uh, but it was again the main concern is also to alert people about the you know, dissemination of plastic and what it can do. And, you know, one day they say that, you know, of the island in the Pacific, that it's probably bigger than France right now, full of plastic. And, you know, where we want, you know, uh, what kind of world we want to live in. And uh, I'm not a parent, but, uh, you know, what we want to leave to the next generations. It's like, uh, and I think uh, all these series is more, because it's a more... Um, activist series than photojournalist or yeah. it's very different actually they are even separate in for example in my website i, I consider this a very different work it's a yeah. more activist work than the other stories i do so but uh, i think it's something that we need well to in my position of uh, storytelling and uh, photojournalist and that we can reach some uh, audience and people i think it's something that we should do, you know, and uh, alert people and, uh, well, try at least, as again, if uh, someone uh, sees any of these images and uh, I know I'm not going to change the world and uh, people will see any of these series and like, okay, I've stopped using plastic or that will never happen. But, uh, you know, if four people, five people go and see the exhibition and look at that, yeah, maybe I should, you know, use less plastic or maybe I should buy a reusable plastic uh, bag or use a totem bag or something. I'm already happy with that. I made already someone change and I think that's the goal. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, right, hang on, hold that thought. I'm just gonna go and get my baby. Can you yeah, 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 I can hear you, yeah, yeah, I can hear you. I'll bring it down. Hello, this is Eduardo. Hello. <laughs> oh, oh, he's smiling. <laughs> oh, very happy. How old is he or she? She, she's seven months. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I I have a, a niece, a two years niece. So. Oh, she actually lives in London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. What do you think has been the most? I mean, like your. Well, I just want to know some of your stories and experiences. What What do you feel has been the most? I guess maybe emotive journey for you. Well, there's very different stories and very different maybe emotions attached to each one of them. Uh, for example, uh, the Hong Kong protests as a bit like the Venezuela uh, touched me really, 
because you know, especially the Hong Kong protests. I don't know because it's more recent, but uh, yeah, seeing the basically the downfall of a society, you know, the freedom of speech, uh, of a way of life that uh, I consider like mine. Okay, it's Hong Kong, it's Asia. Obviously, we have uh, different cultures, but you know, the, they stand with the same values as we maybe from Western countries do and uh, seeing the people fighting for it and uh, and sacrifice a lot for it, especially the young people. It was very inspiring and very touchy, touching for me. Uh, it was interesting when I was photographing there that they will come and ask me like, uh, what, what do you think about this? Uh, do you think we are doing the right thing? And I was like, honestly, here I'm here to photograph, but uh, if I was from Hong Kong, I'll be next to you because uh, I, I really feel that this, you have a point here. It's like, you know, it's the w only way you know how to live and, you know, understand uh, how your society is based on. Everything is changing. And, uh, and obviously you don't want to open hand of that. And, uh, and did that touch me because it, it could happen? I don't know. Especially when we see the rise of right-wing governments all over the world, and you start worrying that you know, uh, don't we learn anything with history? Yeah. Uh, and uh, that I think it, it was very emotional for me. And uh, even if I was doing journalism, I, I never felt uh, compelled almost to cover the other side. You know, I had all, it yeah. was almost an activist as well because I really felt for them. It was yeah. like you know, you are fighting. I think for the right thing and sometimes you okay you need to cover both sides and everything and understand both sides but there it was very very touching in that way and it felt like okay if i really i was in your position i'll probably going to be this doing the same thing uh then, like, i mean that must have been quite scary being out there during those protests uh is, is interesting because i actually never felt really scared there right <laughs> Uh, maybe because <laughs> I had experience from Venezuela, which right. is a much harder place to work. Right. And uh, even if it was crazier, uh, and I remember one of the first days, uh, I was taking photographs and there was a policeman next to me. And somehow he, he must, I was looking through the viewfinder and focusing on what I was photographing. And I don't know if he put his step his foot next one you know he, he gave a step or took a step and uh, and i just trip on him but it's just like uh, oh and I, I said to him sorry and he and he and he apologized to me as well i was like thinking well this in venezuela will never happen you will probably kick me arrest me and take my camera so and that was one of the first days and then i re and other things like uh, before the police uh, uh, throws the tear gas they raise flags warning please disperse and they, otherwise we're gonna shoot tear gas and everything so i, I felt it was uh, okay this is obviously we need to be careful and it can be dangerous but i felt it was a a, a different level of what i was used to so so it was a bit easier to work there but obviously it, things can happen and and with the time that the protests were developing things were getting much harder and the police were getting more cruel as well uh, so yes i think the things were escalating to a point that then uh, i think uh, everyone's then 
lost a bit of reason maybe but uh, but that's another thought or another talk uh, but other stories like uh, i remember one that uh, it was not a massive story but I, it really touched me for example is copa do povo uh, in brazil and it's a story about uh, people that lost their houses because of the world cup so basically what happened is that most of these people actually were middle class and uh, are you know lower middle class and uh, obviously you know you rent a house and you have a contract so uh, the landlords knew that uh, okay the world cup is coming so they can profit from it so when they give contracts all the contracts were given more or less before to finish before the World Cup starts, because they know all the foreigners come here and we can rent the house for higher prices. So these people, uh, months before the World Cup started, uh, basically lost their houses because the landlord said, yeah, I can renew the contract, but you're going to pay four times more. And obviously for someone, uh, normal person, they cannot afford that. You cannot just... So they start getting... They got all evicted and they all went to move they, they made a camp, which is was called Copa do Povo. Uh, Copa, it's the cup. So it was the people's cup. And uh, basically, it was like a refugee camp, but uh, with uh, middle class people wow. that were forced to move. And it's not just because it was a war, because, for example, we know that it happened in Syria and in many places. <laughs> but this was actually because of this. It was the football, the World Cup. So, and for me, that touched me a lot when I was with them because I was realizing, well, again, I could be in your position, <laughs> you know, imagine if I had this event in my country, yeah. I could be a victim. Anyone can, you know, because maybe we take for granted that we might not have a war, you know, well, in my lifetime, I never experienced my country with very peaceful and everything, you know, yeah. and in Europe, we... Well, Western Europe, since World War II, we are more or less, we, we take for granted peace and uh, yeah. no problem. But, uh, you know, something like this could happen because we all apply, our governments and countries apply for this kind of events and everything. Yeah. So imagine this could actually happen. To, I think that is more plausible to happen than maybe a war started in my country. Yeah. So we really touch. I mean, they are like, worse than the india slums yeah 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 they, they were uh, plastic uh, they were tents made of plastic bags of uh, the, those uh, rubbish plastic black plastic bags they just cut it open and they made tents out of it uh but uh, yeah so it really touched me when i when i was there working with them and uh, but at the same time i am i'm amazed by the re resilience of people and you know they organize themselves because obviously then these people that what are I going to do? I have to go to work. Where are I going to leave my kids? So I cannot cook or so they organize the camp and in a way that, you know, do uh, domestic, uh, not helpers, but let's say the, the housewives. Uh, that's the right word I was looking for. Uh, for example, housewives, since they used to stay home, they were staying in the camp now. So they will take care of the kids of other families or some women will uh, cook for the people that were not there or others will provide since I work I can bring food or other people will I can get donations work on that so it was very interesting how they organized themselves and made uh, a functional camp because they didn't have the NGOs there helping them bringing food or anything no they were you know by, by themselves so it was very interesting to see that and especially 
all this caused by something that the whole world is celebrating, you know, and with the focus on. And the, the irony of that is that this camp was maybe from the camp, they could see the, the Corinthians uh, Stadium, which was where it was inaugurated the World Cup. So basically, you know, yeah, it's like a, a slap in the face almost. You All know, the time, it. yeah. Yeah. You, you lost your house, and, uh, and but you can look to a brand new stadium. Yeah. God, that's just incredible, isn't it? What a weird, so, weird world. And I mean, so what? carry on. No, 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 please, please. Well, I was just going to say, like, I remember when I was um, in India, just sort of seeing how how people are able of, to make something of, of nothing. You know, they're still able to, um, to, to have happiness out of the rules of life. And, you know, that despite the fact that they don't have what, what we take for granted and they're in a very difficult situation, something about that is very leveling. And um, I'm still able to see like human, the human ability to find, to have happiness and have, mm -hmm. make the most, I guess, of what, of the situation that they were in. Did you find that a lot? Yeah, yeah, uh, that and in many, many places. I, for example, when I went to photograph the aftermath but months after and more the well how they were because uh, in ecuador after the earthquake that uh, destroyed most of the coast of the country and the amazing thing is that i was there and people were when i was working there the people that suffer from the earthquake that lost everything they were worried if i had food they were like have you eaten today and and it's like you lost everything and you are worried that if i had food, if I had lunch, I would show up in the morning like, did you have coffee? It's like, and you know, they are living in tents in, a, in the um, in the airport. And it's like, uh, really? And I, it's amazing. It's like uh, how people with all, you know, the adversity in the world and they still have this uh, amazing kindness and, and, and they laugh, they, they still play and, you know, with uh, all the hardship, in front of them and that they have to face and it's amazing how they just uh, keep going and uh, believe that you know and find place even to be kind to someone because we know that look what happened for example now with the pandemic you know people toilet paper disappeared there was people fighting for toilet paper when you know there was not even a shortage of it just people just created because they panic yeah. and then in people in in extreme situations they still manage to go through and uh, change the chip in their minds and uh, and just go with it and and be human that that's the the most amazing thing on that um yeah when you um like with the earthquake in in ecuador for example do you see um a a, a sort of a, a catastrophe like that and then get out there as quick as possible or how, how does it work for you in that sense well uh, in this case, uh, well, it depends on the story. It's not a catastrophe, but some things, yeah, you just go there. But for example, the earthquake in Ecuador was interesting because uh, I didn't went straight when it happened. Because uh, first, it was not easy to get there. And then also, uh, no one wanted to assign it. <laughs> of course. Uh, it it's interesting. It's, and it, sometimes it's the wrong... Uh, 
at least with editors, they were like, no, we're not interested right now. Let's see how it develops and stuff. And, uh, but because I was in Colombia, I was like, I really want to work on this story. And, uh, but I felt, so I didn't went immediately. I went months after because I was more interested how people are living after it. Because yeah. again, it's very interesting that uh, it's on the spot news and everyone is talking about it and everyone shows image or stories about it oh look to the people look to the people lost everything and everything and uh, lost everything and then suddenly you know another story comes up and uh, people are completely forgotten and no one knows more how they live you know you can be inundated of of stories of imagine this case the earthquake in ecuador for three weeks and then it's like they they never existed and uh, so i felt i wanted to since i could go back there and then i Luckily, I, I had a friend that started working in the reconstruction uh, of the coast there. And he could give me access to some places. And I talked with him and said, yeah, if you want to come. So I self-assigned myself. And uh, I went there to, to tell the story of the people. How, especially after, because it was coming the six months, uh, time, uh, let's say, anniversary of the, of the earthquake. And I really want to go and see how people are coping after it because no one is talking about there is reconstruction these people building houses do they have houses are they still in the same place you know and um, it was quite interesting to see that some areas yeah they were developing but other areas they were completely forgotten and they were just uh, let them to their luck you know so but yeah yeah, it it was a it's not that i went straight there but uh when it happened i wish i could have gone but uh, but i felt that i was still wanted to tell the story even if uh... and again though that sort of reminds me of what you said about chulita's rise is again it's your you know in in your sort of um showing the world that a about the fact that people have been forgotten and and the tried I think there's a tragedy in that, but also you've got some beautiful pictures and stories of the hope of people surviving and and rebuilding and and stuff. You know, would that be right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, what I think one of the main reasons why I do what I do. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, what so what's next for you what what do you feel uh well with the pandemic it's uh, it's very hard to say now you know i it's interesting because i when the year before everything changed uh i was very focused i start i i, I spent the two months in the kumba mela which is the biggest religious festival in the world yeah that looks incredible and uh, and then the Hong Kong protests came, uh, and in between I was work- I'm, I'm working personal projects, uh, one related with Macau, uh, more to try to get understanding of what is Macau <laughs> and what is to live there and uh, all the difference because of the glitz, but also of the other side, uh, because there's always a, a, another side of the coin. Um, but and I was working as I said in other projects related with uh, women in society and everything but uh, well it came the pandemic and all my plans you know they got a pause and 
And then, yes, I, I'm in Astorius right now. I'm working in, in three projects. Uh, so when I'm basically editing moment now, it's about Fisher Woman in Astorius. Uh, and uh, other two projects, so, uh, one about repatriated uh, from America, Astorians that they are repatriated from America uh, here. So basically it's people that left when they were uh, very young with right. their parents, parents migrate to the to the US and Canada. And then because they misbehave there, they are basically sent here with nothing and they don't have any connection to this land because they left with two years old, five years old, six, uh, but they never integrated there because they went basically to live to ghettos and uh, they didn't spoke the language or anything. So it's basically very easy to fall out uh, in society and uh, and then they are sent here and they are kind of discriminated here as well and everything. Oh, wow. So this is uh, the project, one of the projects I'm working on here. So I think that's what is now or next. Yeah. Uh, because to be honest, when I came to Asortes, uh, which was one year ago, um, I, as I told you in the beginning, I, I, I thought I, I bought a one-way ticket, but honestly, I thought I will be here for maybe two months or three months. Yeah. Or maybe a few weeks, and I could go back to my life. Yeah. Uh, what I, I I used to know was my normal life, <laughs> and uh, now I, I don't know. I'm I'm still stuck here for a while, and uh, since uh, life put me here in a way, I I'm just uh, focusing on what I can do here, and then we'll see. Uh, I, it's hard to say what's next because I had so many plans and flights and everything before yeah. the pandemic plan, and I'm stuck, and everything is in. You know, it's in a standstill. So, how do you uh, manage to stay positive? I know at the beginning you were saying that you're a very positive person. So, has have you ever has that been tested during this time? Because it sounds like you obviously haven't been able to do what what has made you tick for so many years and has inspired you. Have you been tested in that? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think every day. Uh, it's a. It's a so not every day, but uh, yeah, I will say every month I, I have a period of struggling yeah. uh, because uh, I want to, I feel the urge that uh, first I, I, I used to travel a lot and move a lot from place to place. And I've been for basically one year in the same place, which is very weird for me. And, yeah. you know, you have this rhythm in your body that I always want to see new things and go and experience and everything. And that is gone completely. So I try to recreate that here. Uh, maybe I, I'm not changing country, but maybe I can change island or go to trek or something. And then I start, I start finding joy in different things. Uh, I'm luckily in a house now that has a garden. So, you know, I'm, there's banana trees and chicken and everything. And well, things that I never did in my life, I'm doing that. I, I'm focusing a lot in walking and uh, different activities. I, I don't know. I try find the positive things you know okay i know that uh, one day the world is probably going to go back and i go back to my crazy life and i cannot live this anymore so since i have this let me focus on this and sometimes of course i just oh i want to go to travel oh i want to go back to do this and and then it's like okay if i start focusing on the future that there's no point i'm just creating problems in my mind yeah uh that's I cannot solve them now. So there's no point for me to be here, you know, like uh, with the mind always working and thinking in the future, the future, the future. If I think too much in the future, I'm not going to leave the present. And the present, basically, I'm here. 
and I have to deal with it. And what I do usually is I take some deep breaths and start focus on what you're doing now. And, you know, things will come, you know, whenever they come, but, uh, but yeah, it is a struggle sometimes, but uh, you need to think just, uh, yeah, it's going to, it will pass when it passes and uh, take the most of it, of what you're living now. And uh, I am also doing things I, I never thought I would be doing. So, and I'm looking for the joy in them. So. Sorry, isn't it? Because um, you and I have a, a mutual friend of Emiliano who I know shares the same spirit and, and I'm definitely that same uh free i guess it's a free spirit nature isn't it and uh and this and the pandemic has sort of um tied our wings a little bit <laughs> and i'm very grateful for the amount of travel and exploration i was able to do before the pandemic hit because <laughs> i was the same for me backpacking as much as possible but i would backpack between jobs and races and you know, that was just who I was and, and finding the beauty in the different places and stories and things. And you're exactly right. Like now, uh, it's, we sort of have, to, I mean, I'm lucky in the fact that I am back able to travel a bit more because of racing, but I'm not able to explore, you know, mm -hmm. but I still find the beauty of being above the clouds. I love that. I love that feeling of being on a plane and, and yeah. get the clouds. Um, but I do now find the same I have to find channel that same energy into yeah the garden and walks like around where I am now and going for a different route and getting lost and that same <laughs> untethered nature I, I'm sort of just channeling into my day-to-day -day when I'm at home you know I might just go somewhere new go for a walk down around a different park that I maybe have never seen before and and that I'm able to tap into the same that same spirit that I have when I'm traveling the world yeah. and actually it's forced me to to look a lot closer to home which is actually really beautiful really mm -hmm. uh, and something that I should cherish more as well yeah it's interesting because uh especially people that travel so much, you know, you never look to your own backyard, you know, it's just uh, always thinking in a new place, different locations. I want to go there. I want to go there. And for example, the Azores Islands where I am right now, uh, they are Portuguese islands. They are one hour flying from Lisbon or Porto. I never been here. Wow. And uh, it was the pandemic that it was okay. Maybe it's the time to go see it. And I actually, honestly, it's probably one of the most beautiful places I've been wow and uh and i was like i cannot i actually told someone i cannot believe that it took me 40 years to come here <laughs> i was always planning to go to the other side of the world and i had this little paradise uh, here with uh, volcanoes and things that i might associate to indonesia or something and i just had next basically a home so yeah. and uh, and yeah that thing of the walks and everything and focusing more under present, I think it's... Uh... And looking up, you know, like, what is it about that? I remember um, one day going, you know, when I was working in London more often, um, I remember one day walking down Oxford Street, High Street, horrendously busy High Street, you know, and yeah. thinking, if I was in any other city, 
I would be looking up, I would be admiring the buildings, I would be amazed at the statues that I'm seeing. And yet, just because I'm in London, I'm not doing it. I'm no. <laughs> on the fact that the road is quite busy. I'm trying to get into Topshop and I can't because some idiot stopped in front of me. Those unnecessary things to think about, but that's what I'm doing in this city. Mm-hmm. It's an incredible city that everyone yeah. in the world spends their time going, I haven't been to London, but I would love to go. Mm-hmm. Here I am complaining about how busy the sidewalk is, you know? And so I thought, well, I, what I'm going to start doing is treating my home like I would when I go to Berlin or Prague or beautiful mm-hmm. cities. I'm going to, I need to start doing that. And I, so I remember looking up and I clearly remember walking down Oxford Street, looking up and Regent Street and looking at the buildings and being amazed at how beautiful they are and thinking, I'm never going to do that again. You know, wherever I go, I'm going to keep looking up and keep looking at the buildings and the trees and the skyline, no matter where I am. And I <laughs> stopped doing that. And that, that's just such a good that was such a good switch to make in my brain. Yeah. But even in the local village, what do the buildings look like? Because they're really inspirational and they all have a story. Yeah, it's true, it's true. Mad, isn't it? Yeah. We just don't do yeah. it. No, it's, it's when you take it for granted, you know, uh, things. And then you don't uh, appreciate almost them anymore. And it's funny because this can be even in that or in a relationship, you know? Yeah. I think when everyone takes, when you start taking things for granted is when you start uh, not appreciating them and giving the real value to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People as well, you know, like how different are we when we're traveling and we're in a bar or something mm-hmm. like that or a coffee shop and we're open. We've got the open sign on our face and our bodies, yeah. haven't we? Of I want to make friends and I want to listen to what you have to say. And yeah, at home we go, no. I don't talk to you. I don't talk yeah. to you. Leave me alone. I don't want to talk. <laughs> yeah. About being in a foreign country that makes us do that. And, and again, so I was like, right, how can I switch that mentality that, you know, if I'm in a coffee shop or, a, you know, there's nothing wrong with going oh. to a bar on your own. We do that in every other country in the world when we're traveling. Mm-hmm. And yet, but then at home, oh no. <laughs> for some reason, it feels a bit odd, doesn't it? To go to your yeah. local pub, or, or I know lots of people will go to a pub on their own, but not many, and certainly not as a girl on their own, you know? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I do it wholeheartedly when I'm in, you know, Peru or random places like that, where I'm probably, you know. Yeah, because we are more open to it, you know? Yeah. And then I think we also have a lot of preconceptions about, uh, you know, when we are in our own home, that's all oh, we have to behave in certain ways. And when we are away, we are free. It's like, yeah. there's, you know, I'm not going to be judged. I don't care what people think. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. take it, everything, soak everything I have at my disposal. And yeah. uh, when you are at home, you are a bit like more reserved and, you know. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's amazing, actually. Yeah, uh, I feel the same. <laughs> it's why I... That's the reason why you people then like to travel when they get the travel bug. Yeah. They don't want any, anything else. No. Right. I can't wait until, I mean, you've just met my baby who's seven months and uh, she came to Cologne with me last week for a job. And already I was like, oh my God, you know, I just loved being able to take her and show her places. I mean, she's never going to remember it, but that's irrelevant. No. 
Um, but I can't wait to, uh, I really hope that she shares that travel spirit and wants to. I sort of have visions of her and I. I mean, you know, my partner, he, I'm sure he would love to be with us. But, <laughs> but I have this bizarre, you know, sort of that she and I will just go off and do backpacking together when she's sort of three or four. And I just think that would be mega. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's a very big influence, you know, I'm sure you, 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 you put basically the travel bug again on her and, uh, yeah. yeah. And they are much more open to it. I think, you know, the more you are exposed to things, the more you, they become normal to you. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I agree. So just before we, finish is there any other stories that you feel like you should share uh well i let me think what we we have been uh what we cover until now uh the plastic trees hong kong uh well another one and it's about inspirational and uh, i did a story about it's called victim and heroes and maybe it's quite uh, interesting to talk about it now because since it's the Paralympics going on right now yeah. and it's about uh, athletes or victims of uh, and again it's about looking to the positive side of a very bad situation uh, so basically it's they are called victims and heroes because they were victims of the conflict in Colombia uh, some of them were uh, army personnel, soldiers, others were civilians. And uh, for some reason, they are because they step in the landmine or because they, as a child, was playing what was a mine and they thought it was a toy and blast the hand or all their injuries are uh, conflict related to the conflict that was, and well, in some ways is still happening in Colombia. Uh, but these people which had very hard stories and uh, a lot of them cross like suicide because you know when you lose your, your mobility or your legs or something and they really face a lot of doubts about even what their purpose in life is and the amazing thing is all of them found that uh, purpose in sport and most of them they were not sporty people or they never care about it. but uh, suddenly they through the recovery of their injuries they discovered as a therapy that sport could help them and the amazing thing is that they became paralympic athletes in real athletes and uh, some of them they already have uh, they are uh, they have olympic medals so basically uh, i went to i follow very different people uh, with uh, different kind of injuries and stories and uh, basically again is all about uh, the mindset and you know uh, how how they can approach life and the difficulties they have because you know when I was talking with them and I cannot imagine what is to lose a limb or you know doesn't matter what it is even a finger you know uh, imagine losing legs or uh, the mobility and you are stuck in a wheelchair for the rest of your life and uh, and these people went through that and they overcome it in ways that uh, I guess they never thought was possible. And uh, most of us, you know, we complain for such little things in life. Oh, my phone is not working or whatever, you know, like, uh, and, uh, and it can ruin 
our day or weeks, sometimes little stupid things. And these people, again, it's like the people with the earthquake or whatever, they, they always look forward and they can see that there is a positive side in life and everything and the way that they approach it. And it's why they are called heroes as well, because they overcome all the difficulties that the life threw at them. And uh, uh, honest, and, uh, I don't know if to finish or not, but the conversation, uh, but uh, one of the things, one of the persons that I photographed in this project was amazing because uh, he got stuck in a wheelchair and uh, it was his name was Oscar. He's a basketball player uh, of Col Colombia uh, national team, Paralympic national team, and uh, he he was a bodyguard of a governor in Colombia. Uh, he got uh, during a assassination attempt. He got uh, bullets in his back, so he got stuck to a wheelchair. Uh, but he told me something that for me, it's, he told me if I was born again. I wanted to be born in a wheelchair. And he said, because uh, wh while I was a normal, and I'm not saying they are normal, but uh, when I was a full functioning human being, you know, with legs working and everything, he told me I was an asshole, basically. I, I, I didn't have a, a nice word to say to my mom. I treat women like garbage. I just care about money and motorbikes. I, basically, I was not a very nice person. And uh, he told me when I, when the accident happened and everything, I have to put my life completely in perspective, and I start uh, uh, embracing the the small things of life and enjoying the small things. And he said I became a much better human. Uh, I, I I now I have a better relation with my mother. I have a steady relationship with my partner. Uh, I'm I help people, which I never did. I always thought just about myself. And, uh, and the, the amazing thing was when he told me, to be honest, if I had to be born again, I want to be born in a wheelchair because I'm much more happier in a wheelchair than I was before. That's incredible. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it's sad that, that it can take, that it sometimes needs to take something like that for someone to um, appreciate what's around them and what and, and the good things that they have but and what an incredible way for him to what's what an incredible switch that he's made i had um uh, a wonderful lady on called martine wright who lost her legs in the circle line bombings um she was actually sitting she was the the, the person sitting closest to the bomber and she remembers him with his bag um and she talks through obviously the actual sort of experience and 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 remembers watching people being carried out and people who've lost their lives and she's she's able to see the fortune you know the fortune of her being alive the the fact that she was sort of one of the chosen ones to be mm -hmm. given a chance to start again in a different way and has that same sort of a, approach like appreciation for people around her um appreciation for life um and she said the same or very similar that you know i asked if she could do it all again and and um, you know sort of would she choose to take that experience away and and she didn't either. And she's also a Paralympian. She's a, a, a volleyball player. Mm -hmm. 
And the same, you know, that experience has taught her so much that she feels that she wouldn't have ever flourished in life had she not gone through it in the same way. It's incredible, isn't it? Like, they really help you put your own life into perspective, don't they? And they're reminders (laughs) of of how fortunate, you know, we we are, I guess. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. What an experience. What amazing experiences you've had. Yeah. How much do you think that um, all of it has impacted you in your day-to-day life? A lot. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, when, when I think I start my journey, and when I say my journey is more when I left home uh, at this tree, um i've yeah i developed a lot as a human and i think that the part i'm not the person that i used to be i think <laughs> uh, i i grew up in so many levels because of the experience i had and the challenge and i don't feel i have many challenges comparing with a lot of people that i met i think it's even unfair because i think that life has been too kind for me but uh but really put me in perspective uh, how we should live life and how we should appreciate things and uh, and how lucky we are. Uh, I think in my life, but I think in general. And when I'm a, I became a more patient person, a more understanding person, I, more um, disconnect to things that maybe most of the society values. Uh, I think that was very big. Uh, uh, lessons and uh, I think it was improvements in my life uh, but uh, it's funny because I talk about patience but then I I don't have much patience or I cannot I feel awkward when I'm sometimes back to our world and uh, I see people complaining for the little things in life that's as if it was a major catastrophe that I think is the thing that, and there I noticed how much I changed because I used to be like that. And nowadays I, the way I approach life and all was because of these stories that I dealt with and covered and the people I met on the way and the experience that uh, I might probably have thought that, uh, oh, they didn't change. I'm still the same person. I know, but when I, deal with the world that where I came from and uh, and the people that I grew up with and everything and I and then I start feeling maybe I don't fit here I don't understand you know why your life you can be miserable or how can be people you know live this way when it shouldn't be I don't know it's it's basically and I knew I was like them and now I'm not so there is a change there is a development for me i think but maybe some people might uh, say it it's not a development it's going backwards i don't know but uh, we we need to be happy where we are and i'm not critic i'm not saying that they are wrong and i'm right or otherwise uh i i just think uh, yeah i just changed and uh, i'm happier so i'm happy with that but uh, i'm not saying yeah not sweat small stuff uh, excuse me don't sweat the small stuff no, 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 no. There's no need. I think uh, life is too beautiful for that. Yeah, I agree. And it's. I think you have to check in with yourself every now and then, don't you? If you, if you are doing that. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I can definitely derail every now and then and go, <laughs> hang on a minute. And, pro- and particularly 
being at home more as well because you sort of forget that bigger world, don't you? Yeah. And um, then you get stuck in the, the little things of the... The irritants. The routines. And the routines. I think uh, all the... Yeah. I think when I'm traveling or when I'm outside in the world, we might have some routines because you get, you need that, but, uh, but you are always in constant changing and, you know, activating the feelings yeah. and, uh, and, yeah. uh, and when you back home to your routines and everything, it's much easier to fall in little things. And, and sometimes, yeah, yeah. I'm, if I, why I'm so understandable if I'm in another country and that's the thing, like you were saying, going to a bar or whatever, if I go to a restaurant and okay, I have to wait, I don't care, or you know, a bus. Yeah. For example, I'm in I'm in Bolivia. Buses that take 15 hours to do a, a journey that break in the middle two times and the journey turns to 20 something hours. <laughs> and I take it. Fine. Here it's a delay of 10 minutes and I'm already procrastinating in the you know in the oh. bus stop. I like 10 minutes. This is unbelievable. I cannot believe you know 10 minutes. It's and you know, and then sometimes I have to do the sink. Yeah. How many times you've been in buses or these or that? And this is an example, no? Yeah, totally. Get a grip, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. I remember, just... <laughs> I remember sitting in, uh, oh God, in the middle of Africa, some what's that, North Africa, and mm. and the same. Like the bus timetable, uh, the train timetable doesn't exist. You know, it just mm -hmm. there isn't one. And so I so was sitting on the train. The, the the platform for four and a half hours waiting for a train because someone had said it would be I don't know maybe half an hour <laughs> I just kept waiting another half an hour and just sitting there thinking bloody hell you know I've really I spent the entire day waiting for a train I could probably have walked quicker to the place that I wanted to get to as well yeah. and it didn't matter because I wasn't in the UK <laughs> But yeah, if I sat on the platform at Wokingham Station for four and a half hours waiting for a train to Reading, I'd be really pissed off. <laughs> exactly. Funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's how, how you, our mind plays it and how yeah. you, you face it. Yeah. Oh, Eduardo, you are worth every award that you have been given and you've won quite a lot from the looks of your website. Um, and your stories are just incredible. And I could sit here for hours listening to everything. And I'd love to spend a day in your brain to relive some of the things that you've seen and done. Um, it's really fascinating. And I hope that um, I hope that the the borders lift soon for you and you can go back home or you know, go back to Macau and be back with your um, I'm sure lovely, your lovely girly. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I think it's the hardest part of all. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Alrighty. Thank you so much. No, you're welcome. It was a pleasure. Take care. Oh, you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.